0: Listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. What a year will do because your kids were just like a whole year's worth more mature this year We didn't have to climb after anybody crawling under or over anything. They were so engaged They were so excited to be there and we just had a ball last month. I appreciate all of those who preached in our place and did such a great job. I had a chance to listen to everybody's message. I'm very thankful for what you got to hear and how you got to be encouraged, and I'm really excited to be back. Today we're going to start a brand new series for the next few weeks in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, you may say, well, Pastor Kevin, I know all the stories in the book of Daniel. I bet you hadn't read past chapter 7. It gets weird there now, so just hang in there. We're going to have fun until we get to chapter 7, and then it's going to get all prophetic, and y'all going to want me to answer things that I'm not going to be satisfied answering. But we are going to try to tackle it. So the book of Daniel, and any time we come to an Old Testament book, we've got to be really careful that we put on our Old Testament glasses. Now, we have the privilege, as followers of Jesus, in the, in the New Testament era of grace, we have the opportunity and the privilege to know how much of Daniel's story has come to pass, but they did not. They had no clue what was going on, and they were in a pretty or rather big state of confusion, the children of Israel or the children of Judah were at that time. So we got to make sure as we go through the book of Daniel, certainly we're going to see it through our New Testament eyes, through the coming of Jesus and his providing of salvation, the Messiah, the one they were waiting on. But we also want to see it through their eyes. So by God's grace, we'll do that. We'll look at Daniel first through their lens. Now, to give you a little bit of the backdrop of the book of Daniel, we have to go all the way back to the, 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 the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Where the children of Israel, having been released from captivity in Egypt, as a as a, a, a an expression of God's victory over the deities of Egypt, you know those ten plagues that God brought were were absolutely in defiance of the idols that the Egyptians worshipped. And God proved that there was only one God, and His name is Yahweh, and He leads His people just however in the world He wants to. And through those ten plagues, he led the children of Israel out of slavery. And they're out in the wilderness having missed an opportunity to enter into the promised land because of disobedience. They're wandering around out in the wilderness waiting for their second chance, which they will get under the leadership Of Joshua. But in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we see the people of Israel in the wilderness being instructed on how they can obediently respond to the God who loves them. Yes, they were being judged in the wilderness. Yes, they were suffering consequences. But God was still going to move. God was still going to be active in their life. And He was giving them the means by which they could actively and realistically respond to Him We know that as the Mosaic Law. And one of the aspects of the law had to do with whether or not the people would obey or disobey. And God claimed that for those that would obey, they would be uh, receiving His blessing. And those that disobeyed, specifically as the whole nation, if they disobeyed, they would have to suffer His curses. And so in Leviticus chapter 18 and 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, God outlines those blessings that the people could expect if they obeyed His Word and the judgment or the cursings that they should expect if they disobeyed His Word. Now one of the things we learn about God throughout Scripture is that He is very long-suffering. It means he has a very long temper, if you will. He does not immediately respond to disobedience, but he is a God of grace. He is a God motivated by love, and he allows his creation, even at times, to disobey a lot longer than we would if we were him. We demonstrate that in the way that we show our temper around our house. Some of the time, we have a very short temper, our kids or or other folks, our neighbors, they get under our skin and we blow our top. Aren't we glad that God is much more patient and long-suffering with us than we are with them? Nevertheless, we will follow God's long-suffering. If we will read throughout the Old Testament, we'll see that often many, many years would pass between disobedience or as disobedience would grow before God would judge. And God would always warn the people in their disobedience... Judgment is coming. If you don't repent, if you don't demonstrate sorrow for your sin, judgment is coming. I I said what I said and I meant that, but now I'm giving you the opportunity to hear those warnings. Now the children of Israel and by that I mean specifically 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel who were in the north who made up the children of Israel when the kingdom split. They never listened to God's warnings. None of their kings ever followed after the word of the Lord. And so God in 722 BC raised up the nation of Assyria to come and capture and destroy the people of Israel. Specifically, the ten northern tribes of Israel. 722. God brought about judgment on the nation of Israel that they never recovered from. They were taken into captivity. They were intersprinkled with other nations that the Assyrians had conquered. And those folks never recognized a return to the land. But there were two tribes in the south that did have some kings that obeyed and some kings that disobeyed. It seems as though those kings that obeyed really obeyed. And they obeyed hard. The kings that disobeyed Well, they also disobeyed very professionally, and they turned their backs on God. And so the children of Judah, the two tribes in the south, were riding a roller coaster of obedience and disobedience. And so 722 brought about the judgment of their relatives in the north, and then for another 120-some-odd years, the people of Judah heard from people like Isaiah, prophets like Micah, and Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and then most recently in their history, Jeremiah. And God was consistently saying, listen to me. If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to face the same fate of those of the north that I judge. I promised you that I would bring judgment on disobedience. And if you continue to disobey, you too will experience my hand of judgment. Now, before we went back into Kids Connection in the first month of this year, uh, we identified some different characters that could could be and, and represent our New Year reminders for us. And the last one that we did in the month of January, the last one we highlighted was King Josiah, who was the 16th king of the people of Judah. And Josiah, having a very wicked father having a a history of wickedness and a complete uh, unknowing of God's Word because it had been lost to the people, discovered a copy in the trash of the temple. When God's word was read to King Josiah, King Josiah became very upset, very convicted. He came under a a great cloud of sorrow and he prayed unto the Lord for forgiveness and he instituted reforms for a little over 20 years in Judah. And God blessed. And God said to Josiah through the prophetess. Yeah, it was a prophetess, but that's what God's Word says. That's what we believe. He said to Josiah, I'm going to judge your people, but it's not going to be until you've died. Well, where we are in the book of Daniel is approximately four to five years after King Josiah's death. The children of Israel have been gone and captive for over 120 years. And now we find ourselves in 605 BC in the nation of Judah, the southern two tribes. And they're about to experience the promises of God. The first thing we're going to recognize as we begin this study in Daniel... As we look at chapter 1 today, which, interestingly enough, is written in such a way that it represents a summary of all that is going to happen in the, the, the 12 chapters that we're going to study. It, it is a reminder of who God is and who His people are and how we can expect to respond to God throughout times of great difficulty, even God's hand of judgment. So what we come to today is the promise being kept by the God who's always been sovereign. The God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob and David and Joseph has always been sovereign. He is the only God. And he is the only God who can be that, that can hear and who is to be worshipped. And he's about to demonstrate himself as such in an interesting way that they probably weren't expecting. It tells us in Daniel chapter number 1, verse number 1 and 2. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now Jehoiakim was a son of Josiah. But he's two kings after Josiah. You're like, wait a minute, I thought Josiah's only been dead for four or five years. Let me tell you what happened. Josiah went to war with Egypt. And the pharaoh at the time of that war was named Nico Pharaoh Nico, And Josiah died on the battlefield uh, against Pharaoh Nico. After Josiah died, his family made his second son, whose name was Jehoiahaz, that's a fun name, he made Jehoiahaz king in Josiah's place. It was his second son. Well they had just been defeated by Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't like Jehoiahaz. Pharaoh didn't want Jehoiahaz. So Pharaoh marched into Jerusalem and said, out Bubba, off the throne. You're going with me. Took Jehoiahaz to Egypt with him And installed Josiah's oldest son as king. You say, why did he do that? Because he knew he could control that son of Josiah. So this Jehoiakim has been serving as king for about three years. Under the thumb of Pharaoh until a fellow by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian prince at the time, came from north of where he lived and defeated both Egypt and Assyria. You ever played king of the hill? Of course you have if you're a boy and you went to middle school who was king of the hill Nebuchadnezzar so now it didn't matter about Pharaoh Nico, because he gone it don't matter about the Assyrians because they gone who's king of the hill Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar goes back home unfortunately discovers that his father has passed his father was the king and so now this great military leader this great general Nebuchadnezzar takes over the throne of Babylon. And I'm imagining in the room when he gets his crown, he's looking around and he's like, so what do we got? And someone stood up and said, well, Nebuchadnezzar, you, you know all those folks that were serving Egypt up north are now ours now because we beat them. And he says, well, let's go bring some stuff back. So Nebuchadnezzar makes a trip north to, Egypt, uh, to, to Jerusalem where he besieges, verse number one says. The third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the newly crowned king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar had had an exciting first year of his kingship. He had won the battle over the other superpowers now he was the man Babylon was the nation and now he's taking over all of those peoples that had been ruled by others we find ourselves in Judah but notice what it is that verse 2 tells us and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hands Now, you could argue that Nebuchadnezzar was king of the hill. Had the mightiest army in all the land and all of the world at that time. The known world. And you would think, well, of course it would be easy for him to go in and take over Judah. They're just two little tribes. And they've got a wicked king. And certainly he ought to just be able to come in and kick the doors down and take what he wanted. Here's the thing. No matter how weak No matter how unable God's people are to fight for themselves, if God don't want us to be defeated, can't nobody defeat us no matter how big they are. So the first thing we learn, the first thing that these people are understanding in the nation of Judah is reckoning is upon us. Babylon has come to take us over. And those that grew up in the synagogues, you know, those that had grown up reading the scrolls and hearing them taught, well, the thing about it is, is they had heard out of Isaiah chapter number 39 written a hundred years before. And they had heard the little small book of the prophet, prophet Habakkuk. And they had heard the, uh, probably most recently, the 25th chapter of Jeremiah's scroll, the the, the thing that he spoke to the people. And God had already identified Babylon to be the one that was going to come and bring about his judgment. So when Nebuchadnezzar got there, certainly he thought he was just mopping up what belonged to him. God was saying, I've been waiting on you to come all this time. He told Habakkuk, I'm going to raise him up. He ain't going to be as powerful as he is without my raising him up. Habakkuk, the the, the prophet, was like, God, I don't understand. How could you raise up a pagan to bring about judgment on your people? That doesn't seem right. You're raising up those that don't even follow you. God told Habakkuk, I know. Interesting, isn't it? Because I do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to raise him up and they're going to bring about judgment on my people. And guess what? He's going to get his. Yeah, I'm not just going to let him do whatever he wants to. He's going to be used by me to do what I want. And then when I'm done, I'm going to judge him too. Well, now it's happening. The sovereign God of the universe is keeping his promise in Daniel chapter 1 saying, If you disobey me after my long suffering comes to an end, I will do what I said. And they're experiencing the judgment that the Lord is allowing on his people. It tells us also in verse number 2, that with some of the vessels of the house of God, he he besieged the king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them, the vessels of the house of God, the the goblets, the, the, the cups, the utensils made of silver and gold used for worship in the temple, had the name of Yahweh associated with it. He took the stuff out and brought it with him to the land of Shinar. That's just another word or name used for the nation of Babylon. And he put those things in the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. A very common thing to do. For a nation to overthrow the other nation to take all the stuff that belonged to their God and put it in the temple of their God. Because what did they just prove? They just proved that our God's better than your God. Except the God of heaven and earth was just shaking his head. I know those things are mine. Yeah, those, those things will always be mine and when I'm ready to use them again I'll make sure they're where they're supposed to be and we discover that in some other books of the Old Testament like Ezra and Nehemiah God saying my stuff's always going to be my stuff I'll let you hold it as long as I want to and when I'm ready for it I'll take it back but from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view we won we beat the God of Israel we beat the God of Judah from the people's point of view they've beat our God. They've beat our people. And now we're forgotten by the one who said he loved us. Verse number three, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. I did some study on that word eunuch, and certainly uh, that certainly means a male that cannot produce children either by birth or, or being made that way. But a lot of scholars believe that this word eunuch, which can be used as high official, is probably more realistic in this. So so Ashpenaz was someone who was a high up official in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And he said, I want you to bring me some of the people of Israel. And here was the criteria. Here's who I want you to bring. I want you to bring folks from the royal family or from the nobility. I want you to bring me the upper crust of the folks there in Judah. I want you to bring me youths. I want you to bring me young individuals that are without blemish. They don't have any physical deformities. I want you to bring me the good-looking folks of good appearance. And I want you to bring me the ones that are skillful in all wisdom. Endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. I want you to bring me the good looking, upper class, don't have any deformities. I want you to bring me the best of the best, and of all of those, the ones that are gifted learners. I want you to bring me those that are going to be able to pick up the things I want them taught. He says, and I want you to teach them the literature, the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank and they were educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. King said, Ashpenaz, here's what you you do. When we're coming out, I want you to make sure that you gather up all of the upper class young people, the ones that are good looking, the ones that are super smart and are gifted. I want you to take them and we're going to bring them back with us. We're going to leave the majority of the people for now. In this first wave, I want us to bring back just the top. Nebuchadnezzar's going to go back two more times. You see, he's going to besiege the, the city two more times before he's done with Jerusalem. But this one in 605, he brought back the young people that were the top of the top. This deportation, as you will, had re-education in mind. Re-education was Babylon's chief strategy for those who were gifted, to learn their worldview, to learn the culture, the literature, the laws, the religion, the ways, if you will, of Babylon. You see, Assyria had a little bit different strategy. Assyria would come into your place and they kill you in some really brutal and spectacular ways. I mean, the, the Assyrians were gross. I mean, they were, they were just wicked, evil people. And they would destroy you and make fun of you and, and display you in all kinds of grotesque ways. The Assyrians were animals. Which, by the way, is a lot of the reason, if you think about another Old Testament prophet, Jonah who God wanted to go preach salvation to the Assyrians in Nineveh. Why didn't he want to go? Because those folks are like animals. God, I can't believe you want to save and deliver them. The Assyrians had a strategy. We'll just kill all y'all and leave your bodies out for the birds to come get, and we'll drag some of them back, and we'll just make a mess of y'all. Babylon had a little different strategy. They were like, yeah, we could do that. But wouldn't it be smarter to take the really impressionable folks of a nation, to take the ones who are really gifted and bring them back with us? We can teach them our ways. We can re-educate them. And once we get them thinking the way we think then they'll be good ambassadors to the rest of their people and bring them along so that we'll just change their whole way of thinking from the top down. Not a bad strategy if you think about it. And he brought with them, verse number 6 tells us, gentlemen by the name of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all from the tribe of Judah. So in this first wave of deportation, with the upper crust of the folks, these young people were mentioned, Daniel and his three friends. So they were somehow connected to royalty or nobility. And they were obviously gifted learners and good-looking guys. That's who Nebuchadnezzar wanted. So he brought them to re-educate them, to show them the way of the Chaldeans, And to prepare them to help others find that way as well. The chief of the eunuchs, verse number 7, tells us that the first step in this re-education was to give them new names. They had Hebrew names. They were to be given Babylonian names. To Daniel, which means God is my judge, he gave the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel- protects life who is Baal it's a it's a a a word that can be used for Marduk who was the chief god of Babylon so Daniel got changed from Yahweh is my judge to Marduk is my life to Hananiah he gave the name Shadrach Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious Shadrach means I am fearful of Aku the Babylonian moon god. To Meshiel he called Meshach. Meshach means who is what god is and the answer to that is nobody. No thing is what god is. To Meshach he or to Mishael he gave the name that means I am of little account. I mean nothing. I'm worthless. And to Azariah, he gave the name Abednego. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Abednego, or Abednego, means servant of Nago, servant of Nebo, or Nabu, who was the son, in Babylon, of the god Marduk. So the first step in the re-education process is to say, you no longer are who you are. You are who we say you are. And they entered into the master's program, the nation of Babylon, for three years. The sovereign God promised judgment, and now he's kept it. Jerusalem is sacked. The best of the best are gone. The temple has been ransacked. The king is under the hand now, not of Egypt, but of Babylon. But what we're going to see in this introduction in the next few minutes is not only the sovereign God that kept his promise, but the four captives who remained faithful anyway. The four captives who remained faithful. Anyway, look at verse number 8. But Daniel, it says, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, what we don't know is if, if Daniel is wanting to avoid the king's food and meat because it was listed in the Mosaic Law of Unclean Foods, that's certainly possible. But more probable is that these foods had been set aside in worship of the Babylonian gods. The food placed before them was probably succulent. It was probably like going to Fred's and not having to worry about how many times you went to the buffet. Hey, Levi knows what I'm talking about. We, are, we know Fred's. Oh, say. It was probably not bread and water, but succulent, yummy, well sauced and seasoned. But it had been used most likely in the worship of Babylon's false gods. And Daniel says, there's nothing I can do about where I'm at. There's nothing I can do about what you call me. But there is something I can do about what I participate in. It says that Daniel made a decision. He steadied himself and said, I can't put that in my body because that would be a violation of the God I serve. And so Daniel resolved that he would remain faithful. And it seems as though his three friends followed along. But here's what I want to bring to your attention. They were the only ones who resolved. I don't know how many folks that Nebuchadnezzar brought with him through Ashpenaz to Babylon. I don't know how many of the upper crust he brought, but I'm sure it was more than four. It seems as though Daniel and his three friends were the only ones who were willing to say, I can't, when everyone else was saying, dig in. There's nothing I can do about where I'm at. There's nothing I can do about what you're calling me. There's nothing I can do about what you're setting before me, so could you pass the the sauce? Could you hand me the pepper? I can just dig in. But Daniel said, I'm not going to be able to do that. But notice that his resolve was a humble request and not a major revolt. Look, look right there still in verse number 8. So therefore, he asked. He didn't write up a sign. He didn't chain himself to a pole. He didn't start screaming and shouting. But he made a humble gracious request he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself and look what happened in verse 9 and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs you see God's uh, Daniel stepped out in faith Gave a humble, gracious request. Wanting to follow his Lord. And what does God do? Sovereignly and supernaturally says, I see that hand. And I'll grant you favor. One person said that it's, it's not faith that is believing in spite of evidence. That one called what that is a superstition. Rather... Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. Daniel knew this probably wouldn't fly. But he wanted to honor his Lord, and so he humbly and graciously asked. Verse number 10 10 says, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, 'I, I fear the Lord my king, who's beside your food and drink. Why should why should he see that, that you're in worse conditions than the youths who you're your own age? Uh, Daniel, I hear your request, man. I, I hate it for you. But the king told me what to do. And if the king recognizes that you're in worse health than the rest, then he's going to put that back on me. So would you endanger my head with the king? I mean, Daniel, what you're asking me is to put my head literally out on the line. You're asking me to put my life on the line for your request. I think Daniel understood that. He's like, no, no, I, I get that. But then stop, Daniel. Verse number 11, then Daniel said to the steward. So the chief of the eunuchs is like, I can't do that, man. That's just too dangerous. And so Daniel, again, not protesting, not storming up and being arrogant, goes to somebody underneath the chief and says to the stewards, I got, a, I got an idea. He says, what if you give us for 10 days, in verse 12, a test? Let us be given vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. I mean, I I know what Ashpenaz said, but could you risk just 10 days? What's 10 days going to hurt? Just let us follow God's command and then you decide for yourself. And so apparently the steward was an hourly guy, you know, he's like, I don't care, whatever man, you know, I could be here today, gone tomorrow. He's like, sure, let's do it. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. I'm just imagining what kind of culture shock for ten days those boys and girls that were digging into all that greasy Babylonian food. I'm just imagining what kind of terror their system was going through for about a week and a half. Daniel and his three friends just over there eating some cucumbers drinking some water you know knowing that they're following after the Lord and and God seems to be moving on their behalf and when the hourly guy finds out he's like hey look at there that's a good idea then he was able to go and turn to the salary man and say look what I did look what I have done right so if you're hourly man just dig in man do it and and make that impression let God lead you He said, look at what's happening. So the steward took away all their food and the wine that they drank and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, look again, here we go. God gave them learning. As a response to their faith, God allowed them to learn the stuff they needed to learn. I actually think we can take away from here, it's not wrong to learn things that aren't of God. It's not wrong to sit in a classroom and wrestle with concepts that are contrary to our worldview as followers of Jesus. As long as you've already made up your mind. As long as you already know the truth and you're just simply wrestling with the world's concepts so that you can in turn communicate effectively with their lingo and point them to the truth that you've already decided is such. And When they did, God allowed them to learn more than probably they ever would have learned on themselves. It's skill and literature and wisdom. And look at here, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's going to come in handy next week. At the end of the time, the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians, enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And I bet Nebuchadnezzar said, because I've got some more master's degree program. Boy, brought them boys down here, taught them the ways of the Chaldeans. And look how they shine. And all the while, the God of the universe shakes his head. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you just don't get it. But hang with us for the next few weeks because he's going to get it. Daniel and his three stood before the king, wiser and smarter, because of the favor that the God who's still sovereign, even in times of judgment and difficult, the God who's still sovereign still responded to their obedience and faithfulness. Verse twenty-one says, "And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, meaning he's going to be there the whole time that is or that Judah stands in judgment." An introduction: God brought about what He promised, yet remained faithful to those who would respond. Now, some takeaways. Some things that we can apply this Old Testament picture to our lives in 2023. As followers of Jesus, those who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we can remember these few things. Number one, God always means what He says. 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 He says. He blesses obedience. He judges sin. God always means what He says. Number two, God is always in control of the kingdoms of man, even when He seems absent, silent, or defeated. Just because God can't be heard doesn't mean He's not still sovereign. He always has been He always will be in control. No matter what's going on around us, no matter who's president or how many Supreme Court justices there are or how many senators follow Christ or not, no matter what's going on in this world, God is always in control. Number three, parental faithfulness in training of kids I believe plays a huge role in their future resolve. You know, Daniel and his three friends didn't show up there and just decide to enact something they'd never heard before. I just got to believe that they had a faithful mom and daddy that kept pointing them to the promises of God, to the way of obedience, and the way to follow by faith. Parents, stay engaged. Number four, reeducation remains a major strategy of the enemy it's happening all the time all around us it's happening in the ideas of materialism humanism uh sexuality and identity it happens in the in the political rhetoric and the nationalism that tries to redefine the faith it comes in secular philosophy and modern education. Right now the enemy is doing his best to reeducate those that are even followers of Jesus to just bite into a little bit of the world's philosophy because if we'll bite a little we'll come back for more. How much of the king's reeducation have you bought into? What things are you trying to hold on to that you simply cannot hold on to your Savior's hand at the same time with? Number five. Faithfully following Jesus in a pagan land will require resolve. And it will require consistent, constant, ongoing resolve that looks like obedience to God's Word and being led by His Spirit even in the pagan land that we live in, and our land is indeed a pagan land. We've got to be resolved, follower of Jesus. Remaining faithful to Christ will always be against the current, but our attitudes should be one of humility and grace. We respond to our Savior not as a loud blowhorn, not as a, an arrogant know-it-all, but as a humble and gracious follower of Christ. Number seven, we can trust God to move on our behalf when we resolve to and remain faithful. God will work. Won't always look like what we want it to, but He'll always be faithful as we respond to Him. Lastly, number eight, Daniel and his friends are great examples of faithfulness. But Jesus, our Savior, is the greatest faithful one who followed the will of His Father all the way to the cross, obediently laid down His life, and suffered so that through it He might be raised up For all to see and to know. You've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Today's the day. Where you surrender and you follow Him by faith. Believing in Him and Him alone. Let's stand together, if you will. With heads bowed, with eyes closed. Christian, follow Jesus' example by faith. See the, the enemy's strategy around you. Say no to the re education. Resolve that you will stand with Christ and you will not embrace the philosophies of this world. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, trust Him today. Follow Him today by faith. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to just look over the shoulder of the children of Judah. Watch a little bit of their history and see how faithful you were. You kept your word, you kept your promise, but you never left them alone. You proved yourself sovereign, and you're gonna continue to do so all the way through this powerfully prophetic book. I pray that you will help us to see the picture of Jesus in the character of Daniel. Help us to see the faithfulness of your son to come through the decisions that he and his three friends made. God, may we lock in on Jesus. May we follow him without reservation, with confidence, with absolute certainty that you'll lead and move on our behalf. Use us in whatever way you see fit for your glory in the building of your kingdom. We love you. We trust you. First, in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.